This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. For 11 years, Josh Paul was a director in the State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs, the office that is responsible for U.S. security assistance and arms transfers to other countries. He resigned on October 18th. During Paul's tenure at the State Department, the U.S. provided arms to many countries around the world, including governments that have violated human rights and committed significant civilian harm, such as Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, the Philippines, and Honduras. Paul wrote in his resignation letter, quote, In my 11 years, I have made more moral compromises than I can recall, each heavily, but each with my promise to myself in mind and intact. I am leaving today because I believe that in our current course with regards to the continued, indeed expanded and expedited provision of lethal arms to Israel, I have reached the end of that bargain." End quote. And Josh Paul joins us now. Josh Paul, welcome to On Point. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. So in the 11 years uh, that you've been in this position or were in the position at the State Department, that uh, crosses over three administrations, right? Obama, Trump and Biden. And I understand that there was some version of a resignation letter in your desk for years. I mean, why was it there in the first place? Yes, that's correct. Uh, It was there because, as you say, the transfer of arms is always a morally perilous business. There are always uh, difficult decisions to be made and, you know, outcomes that you may not particularly agree with. And I drafted that letter and held it it in my desk uh, under the previous administration, under the Trump administration, uh, where in particular, you know, we were focused on the transfer of arms to some partners in the Middle East with, uh, you know, autocratic governments, with uh, poor human rights records. Um, And so I I drafted this letter feeling that if the time ever came where I could not make a difference, I would submit it and resign. Uh, I tore it up at the end of the administration, you know, said, phew, won't need that anymore. (laughs) Yet here I am. So maybe I shouldn't have been so quick to do so. Mm. Now, specifically, your job was to convince Congress, right, to provide military grant assistance, military aid, the kind of aid that right now is is going to Israel and other countries around the world, essentially to convince Congress to support the transfers. Is that correct? To do two things, yes. Uh, So on the one hand, to convince Congress to provide the military grant assistance that we provide to many countries around the world, uh, of which Israel is is on an annual basis the most significant in terms of dollar value, uh, and to convince Congress uh, to approve arms transfers, major arms transfers, which are notified to Congress under the law. And then as part of that as well, uh, for myself to be a part of the approval process uh, for those major arms transfers. Uh, so this is not a situation in which I was you know, standing by and watching others do work that I had a problem with. This was a situation in which I was very actively being asked uh, both to approve arms transfers and then to uh, convince Congress to approve them as well. Okay, so we're going to get into that process Uh, a little bit later. But on October 7th, of course, the day that Hamas attacked Israel, uh, you know, killed over 1,200, took more than 200 hostages. Uh, What happened on that day? Uh, Maybe not specifically that led to your resignation, but that that felt different? Because you've said once an, an Israeli request came in on that day, something felt different from the start. What was that? Well, yes. And and let's be clear, Uh, Hamas's attack on October 7th was an atrocity, and it was an atrocity of a scale unlike any that uh, Israel has seen in certainly many decades. Um, And I think Hamas therefore bears a significant amount of the blame uh, for what has happened since then, uh, as well as what happened on that day, of course. 
Um, so my first reaction, I think, like everyone's, was absolute shock and dismay uh, at the bloodshed on the ground, at the tragedies that we were seeing unfolding. My second feeling was just this sort of sickness or, or, I guess, feeling in the pit of my stomach of, oh, no, I know what's coming next. And we all knew what was coming next because we've seen this before. Again, not at the scale uh, that we see uh, today, either in terms of Israel's operations or, again, of Hamas's attack. Um, but it was clear that the Israeli response would be massive and result in many civilian casualties. And indeed, as those uh, Israeli requests began to roll in, uh, as soon as that evening, I thought to myself, well, you know, are we going to be complicit in what is certain to be a, a massive uh, loss of civilian life? Or is this an opportunity to say, you know, not only is there a better way of doing this, uh, and we shouldn't be a part of, of this sort of massive loss of life, but what we've been doing uh, for the last 20 years has led to this point and it has clearly not worked, has not provided security, uh, obviously for Palestinians, but also for Israelis. And so if what you've been doing hasn't worked, you know, maybe it's time to think about doing something different. So uh, that's a very, very important point that I want to pick up with you a little later in the show. But you're a very um, rare voice coming out of a critically important uh, office in the State Department. And I wonder if you could help uh, shine a light on a little bit of the process that goes on. Um, you know, First of all, in emergency situations like this, when Israel began rolling in the request, as you said, that, that first evening. What does that look like? How does that happen? Who receives those requests? Sure. Um, so there are a couple of different channels through which um, military requests or requests for military equipment can come. Uh, the two main ones are through the foreign military sales process, which is a government-to-government process, uh, in which case the Ministry of Defense of the partner or perhaps their embassy uh, in Washington will reach out directly to the Department of Defense, who will then channel those requests to the State Department for review. Uh, or there is uh, the direct commercial sales process, which is a, a less transparent, I would say, to the public process, but actually accounts for about uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of U.S. arms exports uh, and is which a U.S. company uh, will apply to the State Department for a license to export uh, defense articles or services. Uh, so, you know, immediately uh, after the uh, October 7th attacks, uh, we started hearing from the Israeli government uh, with sort of outlines of what they were going to be asking for, uh, with requests to expedite some pending cases that were already with the department uh -huh. uh, for review. Um, and these all go through a very considered process, typically. Um, the way the department is structured, essentially, is that for any issue, there are a number of stakeholders. So in the case of arms transfers, you know, there is the bureau I used to work for, political military affairs, that oversees them globally. There is the regional bureau, uh, in this case, the Middle Eastern Bureau, NEA. Uh, there's the Human Rights Bureau. And you know, there is a, a process of debate and discussion that goes on in almost every case uh, to make sure everyone is okay based on their expertise and equities. Okay. Now, um, prior to October 7th, I mean, the U.S. was already uh, the the largest supplier of uh, military assistance and equipment to Israel, more than 90% 90, 90 of Israeli imports, um, uh, which totals to, what, $3.8 billion in U.S. military aid annually to Israel. And um, as folks likely know, President uh, Biden has also requested $14.3 billion for further arms. Now, of course, uh, that request is uh, meeting some resistance in Congress. But as far as I understand, the request includes um, and perhaps also some of this equipment has been transferred already, things such as small diameter bombs, joint direct attack munition, 155 millimeter artillery shells, a million rounds of ammunition, among others. 
Now, is that what Israel requested or the United States had already had um, in the pipeline to send there? So it's a combination. Um, And the reason for that is that in addition to the mechanisms I've described, the U.S. also maintains a stockpile in Israel called the War Reserve Stockpile Ammunition Israel, or Warsaw I. Uh, And this is a U.S. military stockpile, uh, theoretically for U.S. military use in the event of a regional contingency, that Israel is allowed to tap into uh, if the Secretary of Defense, U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, you know, asserts that there is a a need for them to do so, uh, which was done in this case very quickly. Um, And so in addition to funneling its requests through the U.S. government for the regular process, uh, some of which require notification to Congress, there are a couple of notifications now pending uh, before Congress, one of which now faces a joint resolution of disapproval. Uh, So we'll see how that goes. But in addition to those, Israel was able to draw directly from U.S. stocks uh, a lot of the munitions you've just been describing. Okay. So... On October 7th, that evening, I presume there begins a flurry of activity, right, in in the office that you were at um, and through other diplomatic channels between the United States uh, and Israel and the Defense Department. You, I mean, you resigned because you say the process was different versus normal protocol when it came to U.S. arms sales to di- other countries around the world. What's different What's different is the absence of debate. As I said, there's always been discussion, you know, under the previous administration, under previous administrations, uh, about requests when there are concerns uh, that, you know, whether it be myself raising them, others within the department, uh, you know, frequently the Human Rights Bureau. What was different here is that there was no space or time for those debates. Uh, a request would come in, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, and they'd say, we need to get this issued and authorized by three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, And I tried, you know, the week after October 7th to raise uh, some of the concerns we've just been discussing about the moribund policy, about the risk of civilian casualties. Um, And, you know, it was met with silence or directions just to set those concerns aside and to move forward. Is did you hear the argument that there was no time for the normal discussion because of the emergency situation in Israel? Um, So no one made that argument specifically. I think that argument could be made, except that, of course, Israel has significant stockpiles of arms uh, for its own, you know, in its own stockpiles, and it had the access to the uh, Warsaw stockpile. So so the idea that there is some urgency uh, to some of the requests we were getting, I think, was more premised on the political, uh, and I know this sounds cynical, but on the political opportunity, uh, on the sense that the barn doors were now open, no one was going to raise concerns or object. Uh, as they had in the past, uh, in the context of immediately post-October 7th. And I think we see that reflected as well in the president's request uh, for supplemental funding you were just requesting. You know, there's $4 billion in there for uh, Iron Beam, which is a laser uh, air defense system that doesn't exist yet. This is funding request for developmental funding. Uh, how can that be an emergency? Huh. So why do you think this was different this time? What do you think the reasoning was or is? I mean, I think, first of all, there was a a natural uh, and emotional response to what happened on October 7th. Uh, I think as well, once that response was there, it was very difficult, particularly for senior officials, uh, to push back on it, no matter what they felt. Uh, Criticism of Israel is is often a third rail in American politics, and certainly no less so uh, for those who have to go before the Senate or imagine a career in which they will eventually be Senate confirmed. Um, So I think for all of those reasons, it was... uh, you know, difficult for anyone to say no. 
Well, Josh Paul is our guest today. He's the former director, he's a former director, I should say, in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs in the State Department. And he helped oversee sales and transfers of U.S. security assistance and arms to countries around the world. As we mentioned at the top of the show, he resigned on October 18th, 2023, uh, due to his disagreement concerning rapid arms sales to Israel. We'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Josh Paul is with us. And Josh, if I may, I actually just kind of let it uh, slide in the previous segment of the show. But now that I think about it, can you tell us a little bit more about this laser technology that you said that doesn't yet exist but is has been requested as sort of an expedited arms transfer to well, Israel? Yes, I mean, not as an expedited arms transfer, but the supplemental request currently okay. pending before Congress includes $4 billion for research and development okay. uh, for this system, Iron Beam, um, which I think, you know, I, I certainly do not oppose air defense systems. I think it's really important that civilians not live under threat of rocket fire. Uh, I also think it's important that civilians not live under threat of uh, aerial bombardment. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I don't know that an emergency supplemental is the place for that sort of request, which I think goes to this point of, you know, this is, is in some ways a cynical opportunity to move things that Israel has wanted for a long time or may want for the future. Uh, and sees now as a moment where the barn doors are open, essentially. I see. Okay, I appreciate your cl- clarification on that because I, during the break, I was my mind was a little confused. I was like, how can this possibly be? But the R and D portion of the explanation helps clarify that. Now, uh, just for the sake of common understanding, we should establish some facts about U.S. arms sale. Right, the, this country is the world's largest dealer of arms. Uh, U.S. arms exports have been growing. Um, grew by 14 percent earlier in this millennium between 2012 and 2016. Um, it's now up to 39 percent of the world's arms or, or and uh, military assistance is from the United States, including to places like Israel, as we yep. said, Saudi Arabia, Australia, vis-a-vis uh, the, mm-hmm. the China threat, South Korea. I, I'm seeing here that um, as recently as 2021, the United States delivered major arms to 103 countries around the world. Okay, so in addition to that, there are laws in this country, the Foreign Assistant Acts, excuse me, the Foreign Assistant Assistance Act, Leahy laws, et cetera, that are 
intended to prevent U.S. arms sales to gross violators of human rights. Okay, so what I want to understand, Josh, is what is the normal procedure that you see having not taken place um, with with Israel? So first of all, can you describe to me... um, I'm seeing here that there's something called the Security Assistant Management Manual, and it <laughs> requires things from the U.S. Uh, embassy to prepare for it in the event of arms sales. Yes, so uh, that it relates to the foreign military sales process. That's okay. a Department of Defense document. And, and what it requires in terms of the U.S. Embassy is for major foreign military sales, for major government-to-government arms sales from the U.S., there is something called a country team assessment, uh, where as the country first comes in to request what's, what they want, uh, the U.S. Embassy, the various stakeholders within the U.S. Embassy will sit down and say, does this make sense for regional security? Does Can they absorb this capability, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And then they will provide that assessment up to the State Department uh, as the case advances. Uh, so there are multiple points in, in any process at which there are opportunities to chime in. Another one is, as you mentioned, in terms of the legal requirements, uh, you know, the Office of the Legal Advisor and State Department has an active role in the review of all arms transfers. Um, whatever their origin. And and then most important or most relevant, perhaps, is the policy piece. Mm. And the policy is shaped by something called the conventional arms transfer policy, which is a presidential level policy that has been issued by every president, I think, since Ronald Reagan. Uh, The most recent iteration was issued February of this year by President Biden, and I think is honestly the best one yet. Uh, And what I mean by that is it really follows the administration's, uh, you know, language from the start of the administration that they would center human rights in foreign policy, and for the first time actually has directive language uh, that says that the transfer of arms shall not be authorized when it is more likely than not uh, that they will either you know, cause human rights abuses or violations or aggravate the risk of human rights violations. And this goes to your question about what's missing here. I think there is no doubt uh, that the provision of bombs to Israel at this time at the very least aggravates the risks of human rights violations. In fact, a month into this conflict, we've seen something like one in 200 Gazans die. Uh, It's an incredible figure. Uh, And yet the idea that this policy could just be set aside in this instance, as it has never been before in my experience, um, was, was, you know, one thing that set this apart for me. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but uh, I'm I'm just fascinated to point out a couple other points in the normal process, right? Because you Mm -hmm. said earlier that the United States has a robust sort of a framework for analyzing whether or not human rights violations will occur with its, uh, you know, arms that we send to 100 plus countries around Mm -hmm. the world. And in that country team assessment that you mentioned, there's there, it must include a description of uh, the human rights record of the proposed recipient, right, of the arms. And it it does. Yeah. And And go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, it does include that uh, that assessment. I think it's also important to recognize the complexity of arms transfers. So, you know, I think we think of, you know, weapons and all weapons, you know, are bad, but it, it really depends on what type of capability you're talking about, uh, what kind of units it's going to. So, for example, as, as we're talking about now in the context of Israel, if it is missile defense, uh, that is one thing. If it is a Um, You know, you gave the example of Honduras, if it is a counter-narcotics maritime capability or a radar uh, to see what is going on at sea, you know, that is not necessarily uh, the sort of thing we would have concerns about. Got it. So then in addition, there's the end-use monitoring that has to happen uh, in terms of how the weapons are actually being used by the recipient nation. Well, no. No? No. Okay. (laughs) Uh, End-use monitoring, uh, despite the name, uh, actually essentially means making sure that the weapons got to where they were supposed to go and haven't been illicitly retransferred or re-engineered or reverse-engineered. It does not look at how the weapons are used. So misuse, 
uh, is not a function in the U.S. end-use monitoring program at this point. It is not, because I'm seeing documentation here that says EUM uh, is in place in also to, quote, ensure that recipients use such items solely for their intended purposes. Well, right, but the law never de- uh, never defines what intended purposes are. And the way the U.S. government has for generations interpreted that law, which comes from the 1976 Arms Export Control Act, is that the intended purposes are that it is not inten- uh, illicitly retransferred, re-engineered, reverse-engineered. I see. Um, human rights, you would think, are a purpose for which the U.S. does not provide arms, uh, but no one has yet applied that interpretation to the law. Okay. So this brings us back to something that you wrote in your resignation letter of October 18th, that You've made more moral compromises than you care to or or wish to to remember. Um, It's becoming more clear why that is, because even though there's this framework, uh, there are clearly ways in which the framework is inadequate uh, in terms of protecting human rights. But so regarding those moral compromises, can you tell us about one of them? Um, I don't know that I'll get into specific uh, discussions and, you know, internal deliberations within the department that that remain protected. Uh, What I will say, though, is you named a number of countries in your introduction, uh, including Israel, but also, you know, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, Philippines. Actually, you know, I think you can take the example of the Philippines under the previous uh, president there, right, where there was a campaign of extrajudicial killing by the government. Uh, against, uh, you know, in the context of its drug war, but, you know, reporters were killed, the opposition politicians were killed, and yet the U.S. was still providing um, military assistance, security cooperation, uh, defense articles. So figuring out, should we be doing this at all, if we should, to whom, in what context, you know, these are all really challenging discussions and debates, and the outcome may be one that is is difficult to stomach. Um, But to the extent that you feel like you're contributing, it's a worthwhile uh, role to have. Has there ever been an example that you've been been involved with where the concern about potential human rights violation has been significant enough to stop an arms transfer? Yes. I, I mean, this has happened frequently. And in fact, okay. the very first thing uh, the Biden administration did upon coming to office, as I recall, at about 1220 on January 20th of, of Inauguration Day, uh, was to suspend, uh, publicly to suspend two uh, pending arms transfers of precision-guided munitions to the Saudi-led coalition. And those two sales remain suspended. Mm. Well, so Saudi Arabia is a really interesting uh, example here about, again, whether um, intent or policy match actuality on the ground, Josh, because, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to discuss that a little further, if that's okay with you, because Saudi Arabia, what, it receives nearly a quarter of U.S. arms exports, and it has for, for some time. And I'm thinking about this specifically in the context of the the disaster, the humanitarian disaster in Yemen, which began mm-hmm. in, in 2014. Um, many groups still call it the largest human rights crisis in the world. More than 377,000 Yemenis killed so far. Civilians, there's massive hunger, disease. Mm-hmm. The Saudi-led coalition there um, has carried out, what, more than 25,000 air raids? That's, up to, that's a measurement up to the end of March of last year. Almost 30% of them have been identified as civilian. So, again, from a little bit more background, Saudi Arabia has purchased billions of dollars worth of Boeing-made helicopters, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin missiles. They received $355 million in large U.S. arms between 2015 and 2018. That's according to the security assistance monitors. Um, And yet, even with all the human rights disasters happening in Yemen via the Saudi-led 
coalition, arms sales continue to the Saudis. I'm seeing here that since November of 2021, even with, you know, President Biden saying he wants to center human rights, the Biden administration has approved sales of missiles, aircraft, and anti-ballistic defense systems to Saudi Arabia, including $28 million uh, for the U.S. to maintain Saudi aircraft, which may be using in those exact bombings on civilians in, in Yemen. So how is that happening? So so two things. And before I get into, you know, the, the Biden administration's policy towards the Saudis, I will point out one fundamental difference here between the Saudis and, and U.S. support to Israel, which is the role of Congress. And Congress has historically, you know, and, and over the course of the last five, six, seven years, taken a very stern view uh, of the human rights uh, context in, in Yemen and has delayed, has objected to, has debated, has hearings, has had hearings about uh, the provision of arms to the Saudi-led coalition in that context. That That is not the case uh, when it comes to Israel, where there is a very, very small minority in Congress who are willing to raise their voices of, of the same concerns, even though I think those concerns are probably shared widely behind closed doors. When it comes to uh, the Biden administration's policy towards Saudi arms sales, you know, I think, yes, you know, the, the, the relationship is very important to the U.S. and it's not one that we're going to walk away from. I think the Biden administration has felt it necessary to show in good faith to the Saudis that we are a reliable partner. But if you look at the capabilities that are provided, and you mentioned some of them, uh, air defense, I mean, this is reasonable, right, in the context of both the threat from Iran and the threat from the Houthi, uh, you know, uh, um, entity in, in Yemen. Um, you know, when it comes to sustainment of, of aircraft. So I think this is a really complex and challenging one, right? Because those are aircraft that could be dropping bombs. Those are also aircraft that could be using missiles that we've provided to shoot down incoming drones. Uh, and that is actually something they do often uh, or, or have done during the course of the conflict. So for each of these, there really is a lot of complexity and nuance that I don't think is captured just in the headlines. But here's the thing, Josh, that I know you're well aware that individual citizens wrestle with. Complexity and nuance, while important to understand and consider, is also how human rights get shunted aside, right? Because, and this is why I think Yemen is such a powerful example, because um, you know, the Saudi Saudis uh, need to defend themselves, totally understood, but the body count between Yemen and Saudi Arabia is so vastly asymmetrical that it's mm-hmm. hard to argue that what the Saudis are doing is protecting themselves versus using U.S. supplied mili- uh, arms to continue to exact, you, know, you talked about collective punishment, harsh punishment on innocent Yemeni civilians. And, and what I don't understand is why, even as those violations are known and continue to be committed, why there hasn't just been a, a wholesale stop on at least, you know, many or some of the arms transfers to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. And as I said, I think, you know, the first thing the Biden administration did was was look at this issue uh, and suspend uh, two precision guided munition sales uh, in that context. Um, you know, these were, as I say, always active, very active discussions, uh, both in terms of decision making and in terms of potential uh, legal culpability. Uh, for the U.S. when it comes to, uh, you know, potential for gross violations of human rights or, or others resulting from uh, U.S. provided, U.S. authorized arms. Uh, all I would say on that is that I always felt that there was a, a strong debate and it did lead to mitigation uh, steps that were taken along the way. It did lead to strong debate uh, both in Congress and in the administration. And and also I felt, you know, again, while I, I did not agree with the final outcomes in many circumstances, 
that there was a difference that I was making and that others in the human rights community within government were making as these sales move forward, uh, whether, you know, as relates to their timing, whether as relates to their content, whether as relates to accompanying steps uh, that, that, you know, we sort of require to go along with them. Uh, and again, it's, it's that that's missing here in the same sort of context of humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, but in this context, it's, you know, as the vice president has said, no conditions will be attached to our assistance mm-hmm. to Israel. We have this ironclad commitment uh, to Israel no matter what. Right. The and no, that is different. The no conditions part, totally understood and, and point well taken. Uh One more thing about the Saudi example, though, because you're right about uh, the president declaring um, or stopping a couple of uh, transfers when he first came into office, which would be January 20th, 2021. But by November, as I pointed out earlier, there was still approval of like billions of dollars of of sales to to Saudi Arabia. Now, you said, you know, within that context, you you and other human rights oriented people uh, within the State Department were able to make a difference. The sales went through. So what what is your definition of the difference you were able to make? So there's a limited amount that I can talk about here, but there was a, a fair amount of work. And one of the things that is public known, for example, is that the U.S. sent an expert, a uh, guy called Larry Lewis, who, who used to work in both the State Department and the Defense Department, uh, to go work with the Saudis to understand, you know, what the problems they were having were, you know, quote unquote problems, um, but but why this was happening and, and how it could be addressed. Uh, there were various other steps. There was training that was provided um, and, and you know, certain other mitigations that we can't get into um, that, that, that were all part of this. Uh, and it has resulted in a significant reduction over time uh, in civilian casualties as a result of uh, airstrikes. OK, we've got a minute to go before our next break. You also said that, you know, the distinctive thing about the, the U.S.'s relationship with Israel and especially recently is the no strings attached transfer yes. of arms. What are the kinds of strings that have been attached in other examples? So very briefly, it's, it's, I mean, not just in terms of the strings uh, attached, you know, for other countries, but there's, there's a piece by Seth and Ziska in the New York Review of Books in which he uh, quotes a diary entry from President Reagan in 1982 during the uh, Israeli bombardment of Lebanon. And 14 hours into that bombardment, President Reagan picked up the phone to Prime Minister Begin and said, you need to stop. Uh, you, you are putting the future of our relationship with you in doubt. That is a conversation I cannot imagine happening today, and I I don't understand why. Mm. Well, Josh Paul is with us today. He's the former director, a former director, in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs in the State Department. And that's the bureau responsible for U.S. security assistance and arms transfers between the United States and countries around the world. Josh resigned that position on October 18th. 2023, due to his profound political and moral disagreements concerning the U.S. U.S.'s continued assistance, military assistance to Israel. And by the way, we have a link to his resignation letter. It's at our website, onpointradio.org. We'll have more with Josh Paul in just a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. 
Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and you're back with our conversation with Josh Paul, former director in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs in the State Department. And Josh, um, you had mentioned something a little earlier that made me wonder about what you think are the sort of uh, the group of forces at play when it comes to uh, approving arms transfers or military assistance anywhere, but you know specifically mm-hmm. it, to, it in the context of Israel, that laser technology that you had mentioned that um, there was an R&D request essentially hidden in an, an emergency appropriations um, request. It's, so it's not just, you know, international, geopolitical or foreign policy um, that's at play here. There's also domestic politics. There's also yes. the, the lobbying of the defense sector. Yes, that's entirely fair. And there's sort of an imbalance when you think about it. Uh, when it comes to the voices that are heard in the context of an arms transfer, right? Because, of course, the partner uh, is pushing for it, the partner or the ally. Uh, you know, typically within the State Department, the the regional bureau that, you know, relates to that or oversees that partner's, you know, relationships with the U.S. also is pushing for it. And then, of course, you know, the company that will produce the defense article is pushing for it as well. Uh, and, and not only are they pushing for it, but... You know, the U.S. defense industry is spread across, you know, every one of the 435 congressional districts. Uh, There is always, you know, someone reaching out to say, why haven't you moved this license faster? Can you help my constituent get through this process, export their item? Um, And so Congress has an active role here as well. And and fairly so, right, because we're talking about a $180 billion uh, annual export uh, industry in terms of the, the State Department controlled defense articles. And that's a lot of jobs. Uh, you know, there are some calculations that it's as much as four thousand, three to four thousand jobs per billion dollars worth of exports. Um, so, so, but of course, the, the people you don't hear from are the human rights community, are the civilians who might be targeted by those bombs because they don't know it's happening until you know the the, the authorization is announced, if it even is announced. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to to make that point because um, this same fact that there are defense and defense contractor jobs in every congressional district in, the, in this country comes up again and again in terms of one of the reasons behind the the explanation of the the ballooning of the defense budget, right? And, and it has a direct relationship here to then how um, the United States military technology is deployed around the world by other countries. It's a very um, sort of bracing and complex story here. But Josh, we should get back specifically to the question of the United States and Israel, because it, you know, you're asking people not just to scrutinize the current uh, request for arms transfers today, but you said earlier regarding how the United States has uh, assisted Israel militarily over the past 20 years or more. And you had mentioned that you, you see U.S. arms sales over that time as having not kept Israel secure. Can you tell me more about that? 
Yes, I mean, we've seen, and, you know, I'll start more currently and go backwards, but we've seen repeated uh, clashes between Israel and Hamas in Gaza and repeated uh, bombings of Gaza that have led to, you know, thousands of civilian casualties, you know, not of the scale we're seeing in the last month, but but certainly thousands of civilian casualties. And it, it is clear that that has not led to security for Israel, that approach of essentially sidelining uh, the Palestinians and, and hoping that, you know, you can somehow sort of carve off that that issue and not worry about the occupation and yet advance relationships with other countries in the Middle East as if it's not going to come back to bite you uh, is absurd. You know, the sense that I, I feel like with each bomb Israel is dropping in Gaza now, it is sort of digging itself deeper into a hole in the sense that there'll be another generation uh, that it cannot make peace with, that does not want peace with Israel. And when you see a friend digging it, themselves into a hole, you don't throw them more shovels. You throw them a rope. Uh, and I think that's what we need to be doing. That's what needs to change here. And then, of course, you know, we're, you know, some 30 odd years almost since Oslo. Uh, that set a 10 year timeline for the creation of a Palestinian state. Um, and, and yet I think we are probably further and the Palestinian condition, uh, living condition is, is certainly worse now than it was 30 years ago. So I think we in the international community, as well as Israel, as well as uh, the PLO, all have responsibility to ask how on earth did we get here? Because it is not working. Yeah. But of course, to be fair, from the Israeli perspective, continuation of conflict, though very, very, very far from ideal, of course, but continuation of conflict is better than ceasing to exist, right? I mean, the, the existential threat that Israelis feel cannot be you know, underestimated, and, and they would argue, especially in the Israeli government, vehemently that the guarantee of U.S. military assistance is one of the things that's been able to um, allow Israel's survival, given the you know the the depth of the animosity towards the existence of the Israeli state from its surrounding neighbors. Well, I mean the the animosity depth of animosity from Israel's surrounding neighbors. I don't think is the depth of animosity that it was you know forty years ago, right? I mean Israel is now at peace with uh, all of its uh, almost all of its immediate neighbors, uh, and has strong relations with the Gulf countries. Um, and then, of course, the question of existential threat. I mean, I absolutely agree that, that Israel has historically faced an existential threat and should not. Uh, the same, I think, is also true, though, and we never put it that way, of the Palestinians who don't even have a state yet. Mm -hmm. So so where is their uh, also right to exist as a state uh, and recognition of statehood? I think you're right that the U.S. Uh, provision of arms to Israel has played a critical role in securing and defending Israel over the years. Um, you know, Israel now is is a modern, highly capable uh, nation state. You know, you were talking about the export of arms. Of course, Israel is also now a top 10 exporter of defense goods and services around the world. Uh, that is in great part thanks to the funding the U.S. has provided, which almost uniquely Israel has been able to use to uh, subsidize its own defense mm. industry. Uh, so we've essentially, at this point now, we're subsidizing our competition. And then finally, I mean, the, the whole nature of the approach in the last 20 years has been the concept that if we provide Israel with this level of security, with these security, you know, uh, capabilities, then it will feel more comfortable to make the concessions necessary and take the risks, frankly, necessary uh, to, you know, lead to a, a two-state solution, to lead to peace with, with Palestinians. Uh, and that's not what's happened. Israel has taken that security blanket and used it to push the envelope, to expand settlements, to continue the siege of Gaza, uh, to continue uh, collective punishment uh, of Palestinians in both the West Bank and in Gaza. So that, again, that approach just has not been one that has led to security uh, for Israel. Mm. You know, I want to take a moment to talk about uh, how 
your your career overall uh, and your academic background and how that has contributed to your thinking um, about uh, the Israel Hamas conflict now because this is it didn't come out of a vacuum right your Correct. your perception here can you tell us a little bit about you've spent time in the region can you tell us more about that yeah absolutely i i, I first you know sort of really academically spent time there uh, when i was doing my master's degree uh, actually in scotland and uh, had a fantastic th- uh, supervisor a guy called paul wilkinson who was an expert in uh, terrorism counterterrorism mm-hmm. uh, and cut his teeth studying really more more northern ireland um but you know, was was really you know inspiring. And under his supervision, uh, I did my master's degree thesis on counterterrorism and civil rights uh, in Green Line Israel in in, in Israel. Um, and so spent you know some months out there, um, you know, living first of all um, you know with Israelis and then living with uh, Palestinian Israelis and really sort of trying to understand you know both sides and what was going on. Uh, I also worked in the Middle East, you know, I did over two years in Iraq working, uh, you know, in 2004, 5, 6, 7, so so spent some time there for the US government, um, you know, working in the security sector there, uh, and then spent a year in Ramallah, uh, and this was under the George W. Bush administration, uh, and then overlapping into the Obama administration, uh, where there is still uh, something called the US Security Coordinator uh, whose mission essentially is to uh, build Palestinian security force capacity uh, in, in the hope that, again, this can contribute to an Israeli confidence uh, in a peace process. So, you know, I, I've you know gone back and forth to the Middle East a number of times, uh, you know, and spending the rest of my career really in, in the Washington, D.C. environment, both on the Hill, in the Pentagon, in the state, dealing with these issues of security assistance and security sector reform and how do we relate uh, with partners and how do we use these tools that the U.S. has uh, to get to better foreign policy outcomes. So the Iraq experience you have is quite interesting to me. Uh, the years that you mentioned were pretty terrible years in yeah. <laughs> in Iraq. Um, and and no amount of U.S. military might made it significantly better, right? And so, I mean, there were temporary victories here and there, for sure. Right. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, discounting them. But overall, I mean, what did your time there... How does that inform your view on whether, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of military assistance can help any nation truly be secure in the long run? Well, that's a great question. I I really think it comes down in in a a significant part to questions of legitimacy. Uh, Does the government we are working with have legitimacy? Does the cause that we want our partner security forces to fight for have legitimacy. Uh, And we see this right now in Ukraine, right, where there is a a legitimate government, a clearly legitimate mission, and that has led to a a massive will to fight on the part of the Ukrainian people, which is truly impressive and inspiring. Um, You know, I I think when it comes to Israel and Gaza, unfortunately, I feel like we are undermining uh, the legitimacy of, uh, for example, the Palestinian Authority and shifting that that legitimacy to Hamas, uh, and and you know where we are seeing a will to fight on their part, and so I think that we have to think of our security assistance and our arms transfers in that broader context. Uh, that it is, and, and you can apply the same framework really to to a lot of our partners who are autocrats and have autocratic regimes. You know, I think one of the things we always sort of the trap we fall into is is listening to what a government tells us rather than thinking about its track record and how its people may perceive it. You know, we can talk about Africa, where we have seen a dozen coups in the last couple of years, 
many of them with uh, individuals who have undergone U.S. training. I don't think the U.S. training is the purpose for that. But again, it's a symptom of when we provide this growth of military capability into a, a, a system or a process where there is a lack of legitimacy, problems follow. So... You're describing something that I think many, many Americans have seen clearly for years. And you're talking about a disconnect between uh, what policymakers see and want versus uh, reality and what actually happens to the people who are on the receiving end of that policy, right? Um, So I just wonder if, why do you think that disconnect persists? Because, I mean, not looking at the track record of, of leaders that you're working with in a country just seems to be like that should be the basis, the foundation of any kind of diplomatic or military uh, cooperation between nations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really complicated question. I think part of it is is down to American culture uh, and our short attention span, frankly. Uh, I think part of it is down to the sheer power of the U.S., the fact that we are involved and engaged in so many different complex conflicts around the world, um, you know, that that anything we do in some ways has a, a trickle-down effect or a knock-on effect that, that it's hard to anticipate uh, because of, of just the complexity and, and reach of, of U.S. power. And I think that's why it makes it really important for us to exercise that power with an incredible amount of thought and responsibility. Yeah. Okay, So so that leads me to... A couple of the final things that I'd love to talk with you about today, Josh. One is um, uh, after your resignation, you've been asked if you would return to government. Government, and you said very likely not. Now that that entails some loss for you, I imagine, because not being in government means you don't have your you know, ability to have a direct say or influence on exactly the processes we've been talking about. Yeah, but not that the, I wouldn't want to return to government, just that I don't <laughs> think it's likely at this point. <laughs> but on the other hand, oftentimes people uh, can speak more freely once they've exited government service. So given that, what would you change? I mean, what policy advice would you change for the United States regarding our arms, our arms sales and transfers? Overall, in order to avoid the kind of sort of constant moral compromise that you say is one of the things that marked your tenure at at state. Yeah. So, you know, Secretary Blinken, and I think he's right, often talks about uh, the rules based international order being the foundation for the world that we would like to live in. I think it's important that we strengthen that rules-based international order, and part of that starts at home. So strengthening U.S. legislation, uh, for example, to close some of these gaps that we've been talking about, so that it's made clear, for example, that the purposes for which U.S. arms are provided do not include human rights violations. Uh, I I think recognizing the role of international law here as well, um, and, and thinking about how, you know, there is no accountability. I mean, this is one of the big challenges, right, is that, you know, even if there are uh, violations under international law, international humanitarian law that are being carried out by Israel, that are being, uh, you know, supported and sustained and facilitated by the U.S., uh, we have at every stage blocked the access of the Palestinians to the International Criminal Court, to the International Court of Justice, where they can seek justice. Uh, so so really investing ourselves in that international rule of law uh, that we, we so publicly talk about. And then most importantly, I think, sticking to our values. We are, and again, I think the Biden administration is quite right, in an era of strategic competition with adversaries uh, whose offering to the world is essentially all the growth of capitalism with none of the complexity of democracy, none of those human rights values. I think it's it's an attractive offering uh, to autocracies and, and to, um, you know, uh, many around the world. Uh, I think our offering of human rights values of democracy, uh, of the rule of law, is a more effective and a more attractive uh, offering to the people of the world. And if we are being hypocritical, if we are seen to be, you know, opposing occupation 
uh, when it is imposed by Russia, but supporting it when it is imposed by Israel. I think that undermines our argument globally. Uh, and so I think, you know, moral consistency, I think, would be at a strategic level the single most important thing that we could do better. Frankly, Josh, uh, this profound conversation with you has left me struggling even more to see how those human rights values are seen through to their totality within the context of international arms deals from the U.S. But in the last minute that we have, that brings me back to something you wrote in your resignation letter. You wrote about Israeli peace, uh, a founder of one of the uh, founders of the Israeli peace movement, Yuri uh, Avnery. Did I get that right? Uri, Uri Avnery. Yeah. yeah. Why? Uh, so, as I mentioned, I was I was out there doing my uh, master's degree thesis, and I met with him as one of the many people I met with, and and I can't remember most of them, but I, I remember him. I remember going to his um, apartment in Tel Aviv, um, and he was one of the founders of the uh, Israeli peace movement, and he told me this story about how, uh, under the British mandate, uh, he was part of the Irgun, part of the uh, one of the Israeli uh, or you know nascent Israeli resistance movements to the British, and they huddled in a basement in 1939. And the head of their unit said, "We're now going to war, uh, and the British are going to war with the Germans, but we're going to keep bombing the British because they're our enemies, not the Nazis. The British are our enemies, and if anyone has a problem with that, get up and walk out." And Uriyev Neri got up and walked out. Well, Josh Paul. He's a former director in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs at the State Department. That's an office responsible for U.S. security assistance and arms transfer. He resigned from that post on October 18th, 2023. And we have a link to his resignation letter. It's at onpointradio.org. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Meghna, thank you so much for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.